we're privileged to have, and I'm privileged to introduce, uh, an old colleague and friend, uh, former Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs and former Ambassador to the Organization of American States, Roger Noriega, uh, who is now a uh, visiting fellow for Latin American Affairs at the American Enterprise Institute, just down the street, and uh, also president of Vision Americas, a consulting firm dedicated to issues here in the Americas. Uh, Roger and I have known each other for about 25 years, I think, uh, when together we were part of a, I sometimes refer to it as a Latin America for lunch bunch, uh, of uh, people from Capitol Hill, from the think tank world, ex-Reagan uh, Bush appointees got together back in the 90s to kind of continue a more or less Republican-oriented discussion about policy toward Latin America. We met about monthly and carried that on for well over a decade. Uh, at that time, Roger was uh, first a senior staff member on the House International Relations Committee and then a senior staff member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's one of our most knowledgeable and experienced uh, hands on Latin America, uh, in, uh, especially on, if you would, the Republican side of the aisle. If you didn't catch it, Roger's article in the New York Times on Friday, you know, that bad and totally failing newspaper that nobody reads, uh, uh, on no good options in Venezuela is really a must read in terms of, uh, of where we are now. And I'm sure Roger will cover many of those points in his talk. Uh, Latin America is an a region that doesn't get very much attention. We're frankly, those of us who've worked on it, accustomed to always being somewhere below the fold of the newspaper. But last week on Monday, and Roger was of course there, Vice President Pence gave a major address at the Organization of American States, somehow got blown off the front pages by things like North Korea and Iran and uh, so forth, but a major address on Latin America, which among other things called for the Organization of American States to suspend Venezuela's participation. That's kind of remarkable and kind of remarkable for the trajectory that Venezuela has made in the last few years because for the last decade and more, Venezuela has substantially congealed the workings of the Organization of American States to defend it and its fellow Confederate Chavista socialist governments in Latin America. And of course, last month, Vice President Pence stood in for President Trump at the Hemispheric Summit in Lima, which, among other things, uh, brought a renewed commitment from Western Hemisphere leaders to the fight against corruption, arguably one of the hemisphere's worst scourges. Here to update us on all that is my friend Roger Noriega. Great, great, thank you very much. Can I do it from here? You can do it from there or here, wherever you like. Great, great, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, hello to our good friends here from who have served in, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Uh, thanks for the invitation, Phil. Uh, there should be somewhere uh, an, an admonition, never follow Carla Hills. Uh, but here I am, alas, uh, to do my very best. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, the New York Times uh, ran my piece, and I guess maybe this is a, 
a sign that of the apocalypse or something, uh, talking about the uh, options for the Americas. The last time I was mentioned in the New York Times, at least in, in a prominent way, was in the headline was that when I was named uh, Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs by President Bush in 2003, and it said Bush names veteran anti-communist to key Latin post. And I thought, this would have been a much bigger headline if he had named a communist. Uh, but in the New York Times in 2004, they were still thinking in those terms. And I guess uh, as one who uh, swore up and down that the Cold War never really ended, and I'm being uh, proven uh, correct in that regard in certain ways, um, there, there you go. Uh, the Americas are very important. It's first off, it's home. It's, uh, these are our natural markets, uh, 33 countries, uh, population of 637 million, combined GDP of 5.32 trillion. Uh, we add another 15 trillion to that. Uh, poverty, 200 million people, it's still a problem. Uh, crime, 37% of all the homicides in the world are, create, are, are uh, committed here in Latin America. The stakes are very important. Uh, of the 23, uh, the 20 countries that the United States has free trade agreements, 12 are in this hemisphere. The United States trades goods and services worth $2 trillion each year with Latin American and Caribbean neighbors, uh, which supports about 2.5 million jobs uh, here in the United States. And we export three times as much to Latin America as it does as we do to China and more than it does to Europe altogether. But uh, there are problems, and I, I quite frankly, um, I think maybe it's a, my national security orientation. I tend to see, you know, uh, things in what, what are, where are the risks. Uh, others can hope for the best. I say let's plan for uh, the risks. Uh, after decades of promise in the Americas, uh, pursued by steady U.S. engagement. Uh, on and off, and much, and quite frequently, even on a bipartisan basis, political, economic, and security conditions are deteriorating in key countries that threaten regional stability. Inter-American consensus to promote democracy and the rule of law, anti-drug cooperation, economic partnerships, uh, as well amongst us in the Americas, uh, have also uh, been either neglected and also assailed by this neo-populism fueled by Hugo Chavez uh, starting in 1998. Uh, at the same time, popular trust in democracy and the rule of law in the Americas uh, has uh, fallen due to widespread corruption and the failure of uh, mark free market uh, leaders uh, to, to produce inclusive, sustained growth. Uh, so there are these challenges, and they're important to us. Much of the pressure behind illegal mig migration on the U.S. southwest border can be traced directly to the instability, violence, and the lack of economic opportunity that still persists, particularly in the northern triangle uh, of uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras in Central America, but also uh, churning uh, problems uh, in, in, um, in Venezuela and in some persistent issues in Mexico. But the net uh, migration with uh, Mexico is back to Mexico and not from Mexico. Um, in the list of countries at the highest incidence of violence uh, per 100,000 inhabitants, 11 Latin American countries are among the most 20 dangerous countries in the world. Instability in Mexico, upheaval in Venezuela, and lost ground against narco-trafficking 
in Colombia uh, can complicate that border security problem in a dramatic fashion. Authoritarian regimes in Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia continue to support anti-U.S. policies and have allowed transnational criminal organizations uh, to thrive in the Western Hemisphere. And that's really important. Uh, and I've been asked over the decades really now, um, what are the biggest threats in the Americas? I would say I have an answer now. It's transnational organized crime, which undermines democracy and the rule of law and, uh, and bypasses anti-drug efforts, their best efforts among our neighbors here, in order to optimize that illicit supply chain of drugs to the North American market. Systemic violence in Mexico and the war against uh, the cartels uh, has caused a terrific amount of violence and death in that country. Weak and vulnerable states in Central America and the Caribbean uh, have been overrun uh, by the transit of drugs and gang violence. Uh, Central America is caught in that uh, vice between uh, the anti-drug efforts starting when Felipe Calderon was president of Mexico and Plan Colombia from uh, from the south, supported by the United States, $10 billion invested in those anti-drug efforts. And over the decades, pushed this, uh, these traf drug trafficking organizations uh, into the fertile territory where institutions were too weak to resist. And we have a hostile narco state. Uh, in Venezuela, which is micromanaged by Cuba, armed by Russia, financed by China, and exploited by Iran, Hezbollah, and anti—I'm uh, sorry—and and, uh, narco-terrorist groups uh, from Colombia, all using that uh, in permissive environment uh, to uh, do their uh, illicit trade, which again uh, undermines institutions and sustains itself by its own illicit income. Worldwide networks of, uh, of illicit finance enable criminal organizations to launder money and to derive vast wealth uh, using our financial uh, system. And that's, that's important. You know, we, we've seen a deterioration of a consensus against drugs, in, certainly in Bolivia and Ecuador, where, and Venezuela, where, the, where these caudillos simply rejected uh, U.S. anti-drug efforts, uh, in Ecuador expelling an anti-drug uh, location uh, where we forward operating location where we carried out some of our detection and monitoring activities, uh, Venezuela expelling the DEA, Bolivia doing the same, while the president of Bolivia is the also concurrently the president of the coca growers movement in, in, in Bolivia, Evo Morales. And so we've seen that uh, deterioration. Uh, and we can say, you know, it's going to be very, very difficult to reconstruct uh, that uh, alliance, that anti-drug alliance that President Reagan and Bush fashioned around the Cartagena consensus at the end of President Reagan's term, which President Bush, 41, led uh, to a very fruitful, organized, international effort to confront uh, drugs. We quite frankly lost that. It's deteriorated for a lot of different reasons. And while we can't say, you know, you've, uh, you've got to do it our way in terms of coercive measures in front, confronting drug trafficking, heroin, poppy production, or cocaine and coca production, we can say you can't use our financial system to, to, uh, to launder your illicit assets. And, and so that kind of asymmetrical tool, I think, is, is still left to us. Uh, it's not just a threat to us, it's a threat, uh, these things, uh, to the quality of life in, in the Americas. When you lose 
that nascent uh, uh, hope uh, of democracy and, and people making decisions for themselves, uh, deciding their own future, their own way forward, deciding their own leaders who are then accountable to people. When you lose that, uh, it, 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 it generates a malaise in the region uh, that, uh, that represents a threat. Also, uh, the rule of law. You, you lose um, accountability of institutions. Uh, you lose a, a, an essential element of commerce, which is uh, courts that, that people, everyone has access to, uh, that can enforce contracts, that can protect uh, investment. And so, you know, these all already have impacts on our uh, future, but also on the well-being of people, who, of our neighbors who live in those regions, uh, in those countries. Corrupt populist authoritarians have abetted these criminal organizations that flourish in countries with those weak institutions, those weak states, and they do impact stronger countries like Colombia, Brazil, and Peru. Uh, an narco state in Venezuela has destroyed that country's democracy and caused grave humanitarian crisis that threatens uh, a wave of refugees into uh, Colombia and to Brazil as well as destabilizing uh, Central America and Mexico, uh, where people in those countries are leaders of their, in, their, in those countries are striving uh, to grapple with their own problems. So this is a, a region-wide failure. Uh, because when they had the opportunity of, of commerce and, and, and economies growing, uh, they failed, these local leaders, failed to take advantage of those opportunities, failed to retool their economies, failed to modernize and strengthen their institutions. Let's, I'm not going to talk just about a, a weak country, like Honduras or, or, or El Salvador. Uh, let's talk about a mighty country, Brazil, uh, one of the top ten economies in the world. And because of poor leadership, poor decisions, failed to modernize their economy. Uh, Lula, who frankly exceeded expectations, and so everybody was uh, thrilled at the time with what he was doing in Brazil, he failed to use his immense political capital uh, to retool the economy, to modernize the financial system, uh, to modernize the judicial system, to modernize the pension system. Uh, and instead, his uh, workers' party uh, turned the government into a, 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 a program for employing its uh, activists. And everyone got in, every political party got in on the corruption feasting on Petrobras as a money machine, uh, uh, you know, nothing like, you know, even, you know, politicians can take down anything, including uh, a thriving oil company, and they did. They, they bled it uh, of resources for exploration uh, and, um, and destroyed Petrobras and instead made it a machinery for corruption, uh, fueling, along with other activities, fueling contracts that then politicians uh, would take advantage of uh, for their own uh, enrichment. And, as, and, the, and the Brazilians also made a, a very important strategic mistake. They bought into the commodity boom. Uh, they, bought, they made themselves a bodega, a warehouse for, for, for China. And so rather than pursuing more uh, integrated development in their own country, more modernization of their essential industries, 
they got in on the uh, on the the raw selling raw materials, uh, getting that um, that uh, uh, easy capital, uh, and doing business with China and and buying into that mercantile framework that the Chinese were offering and still are, uh, and consequently, when China's economy suffered. Uh, Brazil's economy uh, dipped into a serious recession, and it's still trying to pull out of it. And its institutions are overwhelmed by political distrust uh, in uh, in politicians and even the democratic institutions. So you see how this cycle isn't just uh, corrosive of countries where the where institutions are weak. Brazil. Is, is a powerful economy, a powerful and sophisticated society, and nevertheless taken in, taken down uh, by politicians, populists making the wrong decisions, uh, and uh, making themselves and their economies and their and their institutions vulnerable uh, to corruption and, and to criminality. Uh, we also saw uh, in a handful of countries where you had genuine free market leaders. Uh, elected in in in, the, in these uh, in these countries, uh, Alejandro Toledo in Peru, Gonzalo um, uh, Sanchez de Lozada in Bolivia, and they actually made progress in moving indicators in terms of the quality of life and life expectancy and literacy and all these things, and they made progress, but they weren't able to communicate in a serious way about it. I remember talking to Alejandro Toledo when he was president about uh, a Camisea natural. National gas, natural gas project uh, that they were getting uh, inter, international support for, uh, and I asked him how will how will the natural gas from Camisea uh, benefit people in in Peru? For example, what will it do to the cost of cooking gas? I asked him and his his cabinet, and they didn't know. And and frankly, people cooking in their homes or f not being able to do so has brought down governments. Uh, I asked him, what would it do to productivity, to your industries, as you make this natural gas available at a lower cost, fueling your own, literally fueling your own industrial capacity, and nobody could say. Now, they, by the end of the week, I'm sure Alejandro Toledo made sure they had answers to those questions. But we just, frankly, have to do a better job when we're talking about free market solutions of communicating uh, to people about what the real life benefits are. Uh, I mean, no one lives in the macro economy, except for Alan Greenspan. Uh, we, we live in a micro economy, and, that's, and you have to be able to communicate, communicate about these things uh, the way real people do. Uh, and we're seeing this in our own country. Uh, we, we, you know, when I, I have to say I was a Republican, I'm not anymore. I'm an independent. Uh, I'm the grandson of Mexican immigrants, and uh, I live in Washington. I see Central Americans uh, in 20-degree temperatures in the only coats they have, uh, rushing to work at 7 in the morning. Uh, these are not bad hombres. Uh, these are good people. And uh, there's a certain way you can talk about immigrants around me, and 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 and, and uh, the Republican nominee crossed the, the, those lines. But frankly, we have to have a, we have to recognize that the cause of that problem, that that manifestation, that that populism, that took uh, that has taken over American politics, is my fault. 
because I'm part of, I've been living in Washington for 30 years. I've seen us drive up our debt. I've seen everybody say, well, don't worry about that. That's money we owe to ourselves. Uh, it's only a fraction of our economy now. It's not a fraction of economy now. Our economy is a fraction of our debt, uh, over $17 trillion or whatever it is. And that's, that's our responsibility. That's our fault. And so we have to be able to talk about these issues uh, in a way that relate to the American people. And certainly politicians in Latin America uh, should be able to, too. And they should be able to count on cooperation and partnerships with the United States. Unless, you know, when we're talking about, we're talking about the opioid crisis here, we're talking about fentanyl, we're talking about uh, cocaine, all of these things that tear at the fabric of our economy. We're talking about gang violence, where you have gangs which are the uh, vertically integrated into every, from, from Central America into every major American city. Uh, the, one of the biggest uh, organized crime threats uh, in the United States are Me Mexican criminal organizations. So this, these are our problems. These are issues that we have to confront. Uh, I was featured in uh, the article they featured uh, was in my opinion piece on Venezuela and I'll, I'll just give you a quick, quick nutshell uh, of that. I didn't say that we were out of, all, all, all out of options on Venezuela. I said we were uh, coming down to a handful and, and I listed what some of them were. We need to get, uh, be in a stronger position of leadership. Uh, the United States, particularly in the last two years, has uh, fallen, uh, fallen back. And you actually see the Lima group, a group of 14 countries now in Latin America that, may, that were making six months ago stronger statements about the mess in Venezuela than the United States was. And part of that was that President Trump had not put his own people in there. I'm expecting now that you'll see under, Pres under Secretary of State Pompeo and John Bolton, an old friend, uh, and Pompeo, a new friend, um, uh, to put their own people in there that will put some energy and vigor, creativity, and really just showing up uh, in our relationship on, uh, with the Americas and dealing with this acute threat out of Venezuela. Uh, they, you know, Venezuela's collapsing, but don't mistake that for the regime collapsing. Uh, I've heard this uh, metaphor of, uh, you know, Venezuela is a school bus uh, out of control because li literally the president of Venezuela is a school bus, was a, was a uh, bus driver. What if the bus crashes and Venezuela is destroyed but the regime isn't? It's better prepared to, sur to survive this because it has an international support. And, and Maduro may look like he's on the defensive, but he's lashing out. He has his narco-traffickers funding uh, AMLO in Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the populist candidate in Mexico, is getting tens of millions of dollars in campaign funds from these narco-traffickers. So is uh, Gustavo Petro in Colombia. So they're going, they're causing more trouble for us. Uh, and, it'll, and, 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 and AMLO uh, in Mexico, Lopez Obrador, is his name, known by his initials, AMLO, um, says, no, no, I'm not a Chavista, but he spent all of the last 15 years praising what Chavez, the, uh, the, the fruits of the Bolivarian Revolution, which we now see are very, very bitter fruits. It came out re uh, this last week that his principal, one of his principal economic advisors was also uh, a principal uh, advisor uh, to Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. So this, imagine Venezuela on our doorstep, God forbid. But 
I, I do think we have to recognize uh, the genuine risks right here in North America, uh, not just the problems that are further downrange. I'll stop there uh, and get a sip of water and answer any questions you might have. start with Billy Cope. Thank you for, your, uh, for joining us this morning and for an excellent presentation. So Ambassador Hills pointed out to us that the Mexican Senate recently voted unanimously to uh, you know, cut off any cooperation with our DHS. So if, the, if Mexico moves forward with starting to sever ties in terms of cooperating with us on security issues, conceivably you could imagine them doing the same thing with DEA, uh, but even on DHS, it's pretty bad. But uh, where does that leave us with, given the, the pressure that is put, you know, pushing all of these uh, migrants that the president's complaining about coming up from Honduras, et cetera, because of the economic issues and problems with gangs and cartels in their country, they're trying to come up here. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we've got all the issues that the, you know, every other issue the president complains about with Mexico, it just seems like it's all falling apart, getting worse. Is there any reason for optimism here? Well, I was, I thought I could get away with it until you asked me that last question about the optimism. Um, uh, you know, this is a, a serious problem because as I said, net migration of Mexicans has been more Mexicans leaving than coming here. And a lot of it is, uh, that, that's right. Uh, I understand that. Uh, and the Mexicans also have used a lot of resources to stop migrants from coming here. They, they capture more migrants on their border with Guatemala than we do on, on the southwest border of the United States. Uh, one of their biggest prisons is uh, to hold uh, Central American detainees that Mexico has. One of their newest prisons is on their border with Guatemala. Um, they could do a better job on that border. Uh, it's going to, you know, it's we're going to be hard pressed to ask them to do that uh, with all of the rhetoric. Uh, and and this Lopez Lopez Obrador, you know, he nearly won the presidency. Uh, two seconds, uh, two thousand six. Yeah, two thousand six against Calderon, uh, and it was a sliver, a narrow margin. Uh, where we and the Mexican people accepted that vote, which is almost as close as the Bush Gore. Uh, it was very, very close. And so we've seen this guy. He's been on the horizon for a long time. Now everyone in Mexico tells me it, he will win, and he will win a landslide. And his political party, which created by him, with a far left agenda. Uh, will win an outright majority in the Venice, in the Mexican Congress. That's pretty remarkable. And it, it, it is going to be a watershed moment for our, for our relationship. Because we have in the last fit, you know, 20 years drawn the Mexicans out because of the great leadership that Carla Hills gave in terms of knitting our economic futures together. And saw, they saw benefits to that. And, and, and most of the most Lent people still do. Um, we're going to, you know, we, we, are going to put a lot of things at risk, a lot of our security at risk, a lot of Mexicans, sophisticated Mexicans. As a matter of fact, the most sophisticated are the worst. 
say, just wave the cocaine through. Why, why should we leave 60,000 people uh, applying friction to narco-traffickers? Just let the, the gringos want to have their cocaine, send it through. Now, responsible, enlightened people don't believe that, don't, don't think that way. And the Mexican people, when you talk about amnesty for narco-traffickers, which coincidentally AMLO has, talk about amnesty for narco-traffickers, the Mexican reaction is negative. People say, no, we can't do that. Uh, and that is where the crux, where the crux is here, is, is, is what damage will it do to Mexico? The, what instability will it sow? And a lot of us who think the wall was a dumb idea are going are to say in five years, we're going to get itself, we're gonna have to get ourselves a wall. I mean, it's it's extraordinarily uh, concerning. Mr. Yeah, Mr. Ambassador, uh, Tom McDonald, uh, we've never met before, but um, back in the year 2000, when I was COM in Harare, we had some good conversations about two Cuban doctors yeah. who sought asylum at my embassy. Right. And I just want to really take this opportunity to thank you for the, the good support you gave me and my, my team in Harare. Mm -hmm. uh, you were obviously uh, very, very close to Chairman Helms at the time, uh, you know, staff director. I remember you sent your, um, I think it was Jesse's deputy out to see me to visit them. Uh, they were in detention. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was obviously a Clinton appointee. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's the politics of this, right? Mm -hmm. That we're in this awful period now where people can't seem to get along. So I, I want to compliment you oh, publicly you. on just how that went down, and, and you probably know the end of the story. I mean, after lots of back and forth, uh, the Canadians wouldn't help us, but the Swedes did. And after much, you know, consternation from Mugabe, so this was the Fidel time, right? And, and uh, Cubano Airlines had, uh, you know, uh, three times a week flights out of uh, Luanda uh, to Havana. Mm -hmm. And so I was very concerned that these people... Um, a gentleman named Rodolfo Saracino at the time as a Cuban ambassador to Zimbabwe out of central casting. You know, if mm. you were looking for the, the right Fidel uh, uh, ambassador. So um, Ileana Ross Layton and the Diaz Ballard brothers, you know, everybody sort of rallied. And uh, they went to a safe house in Sweden after extended negotiations. And uh, I'd love to know where they are now. They they went on happily uh, to live ever, uh, ever after in uh, Miami in the summer of 2000. I mean, it was reported in USA Today, but but um, maybe maybe some bipartisanship can come back to this. Mm -hmm. uh, as to uh, Mexico, um, uh, I'm a practicing lawyer with Baker Hostetler. That was sort of a, a, a mid-career sabbatical, but. Uh, uh, and I would, you know, ask, uh, you know, Clinton, like, you know, why did you send me here? Mugabe, you know, who's now finally gone. But what, what is your take on, I have some major multinationals and I've spent a lot of time in Mexico de Efe. Um, some of my clients' products are, um, they feel, the, the Mexican people feel like it's their own, but with all this consternation around the NAFTA negotiation, and now this election, uh, you know, what is the relationship uh, in the future in the Mexican-U.S. commercial relationship? Because I can give you two examples. One is uh, one of my clients that makes liquids, um, uh, you know, sort of in the personal care product space, 
moved work uh, from, Mex from Mexico plants that they continue to operate uh, fully uh, up to uh, eastern Ohio uh, where they needed jobs. And uh, another client of, of mine in the auto space, um, there's this joint uh, assembly process, uh, you know, in driveline steering systems between Tennessee and a, and a factory in northern Mexico that came only out of NAFTA. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, wh where are we on this? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, these economies really are knitted together. I, I'm from Wichita, Kansas. And even in uh, that civil aviation uh, industry, uh, you have uh, work being done on all sides of the border. That includes with Canada. It's a really, uh, NAFTA is an extraordinary success, knitting these economies together. You're going to, I think, a couple of things. Uh, we could share lots of anecdotes, but uh, for example, I've, I've done some work with, uh, with a, a Mexican a company that's actually looking at moving some high-tech jobs, more high-tech jobs to Michigan, outside uh, Detroit, because they want to be on this side of the border if that's what it's it's going to take. Uh, you're, and then you're going to see uh, the other countries come in and start, for example, there's a, 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 an announcement about uh, a year ago about Chinese manufacturer coming in to make trucks in Mexico. And that automobile industry is, you know, we've been building cars down there for, for 60 years. Uh, and it's, you know, you're right. They think of it as their own. And the Mexicans certainly, you know, it's, it's a Mexican brand as much as anything. But uh, you're going to see come countries like that, like uh, China, come in and use Mexico as a platform, which we helped to engender, to sell trucks into Latin America. Uh, Forty percent of all content of Mexican exports is U.S. content. So that's how closely we are knitted together, literally integrated uh, across the border. So, but people are going to have to make tough decisions about whether they can get their stuff across the border, and is Mexico safe? I mean, I I, I have had on occasion. I do some consulting outside of the American Enterprise Institute. I do some consulting. And I've had people approach me to say, you know, we really don't want to do business in China anymore. It's a little complicated. Their wages are going up. We've got 40 days on, in terms of ship, shipping. And so we would like to tighten things up, maybe go to Latin America, which is, I think is a great idea, frankly. Uh, at one point, they were willing to talk about Mexico. In two or three years, if this thing goes completely off the rails, they're not going to be willing to talk about that. Maybe they'll talk about Central America. Maybe they'll talk about Barranquilla and Colombia, or uh, or you can talk them into other things. But it's it's going to get it's going to get tough in Mexico. And okay, uh, yes, to keep us on time for our our lunch with Dina Karwar, the ambassador of Jordan, I'll give the last question to Ambassador Towell. If anybody else has questions, just find me at. Uh, find me at lunch, and we'll be glad to visit with you. Great article on Venezuela. My subject is Venezuela. You had a big article in an important newspaper. Uh, there's a tiny one-inch squib buried in the back of that Washington Post paper last week uh, by Reuters, citing the president of Colombia, who was in all silly places talking to a chamber of commerce in Romania or Bulgaria, and he said something like, if I read it correctly, the military will get rid of 
the Venezuelan government because it's a disaster. Mm -hmm. And if the military then does it right, Venezuela will bloom and be a glorious place for everybody all over the world to invest. Mm. What do you think of that? Well, the, the, the reason the New York Times asked me to, to write something on that, on that subject of Venezuela was because Juan Cruz is the Senior Director for National Security Council for, for Western Hemisphere Affairs made a statement of, uh, basically uh, inducing the military to respect their oath to the Constitution, to democracy, to, to protect human rights. Uh, and the, the New York Times folks uh, said, you know, he's obviously talking about a coup. Now, tell you how much things have changed is it took me two or three iterations with the Times editorial editor before I realized that he was saying, what's such a bad idea? What's, is it such a bad idea to have a coup in Venezuela? I thought he was trying to draw me out, you know, right-wing Republican, never saw a coup he didn't like. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I thought they were trying to draw me out. But no, actually, the guy was asking a serious question, uh, uh, you know, because you have this criminal regime. Uh, Maduro's got a son and a stepson uh, in federal prison for smuggling cocaine. Uh, the other son's involved, his wife's involved. It's a family business. And what they're doing to Venezuela on a grand scale is a little bit, you've seen the movie uh, Goodfellas, where they, uh, the gangsters go into business in a pizza a pizza shop and at, you know they run up the in false invoices they steal the inventory uh, you know they drive up uh, the bills of this of the pizza shop owner uh, and then at the end what do you do you burn it down for the insurance money this is what's going on in Venezuela not to be too sophisticated to an oil company to an oil rich country an oil rich economy being sacked estimated uh, Chavez's own Minister of Finance, former, estimated that they've looted $350 billion. That's one-third of the, of the revenue from, from oil imports. They've made it impossible to make money pumping oil because the costs are so high because they haven't done maintenance in 20, in 18 years. On the, and so they're everything is collapsing. And... Uh, but I can assure you, uh, Hugo Chavez's family's got $60 billion squirrel away in some banks. So the only way you're going to deal with that, because they, they, they systematically uh, crushed you know, uh, demonstrations uh, in 2015, I think it was, uh, 150 people kill, killed, uh, hundreds injured, and thousands injured, hundreds jailed, uh, you know, political leaders... Uh, forbidden to seek public office. The, the National Assembly in December 2015 elections, uh, two-thirds of the votes went to the opposition. And so within six months, they basically took away all of the powers of the opposition, of the, uh, of the National Assembly. So many believe uh, that the only way you're going to deal with this are security forces that are saying enough. Why? Because their own grandmothers, their own mothers, their own wives don't have food to eat either. And you, if you see a picture of a, of a pantry of, the, of a military unit and it's got roots and, you know, 
nothing else in there to eat and they and they're feeding them once a day and they're expect, supposed to go out and do training the next time that maduro says go out and and attack that group of students who are protesting he may not get the answer that he's looking for and that's what uh, I, I i'm expecting will happen uh, and i have and some some reason to assume that there are elements within the military they're 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 chavista you know Chavistas who adored Hugo Chavez, who cried when he died, are friends of mine now. We, what we have in common, in addition to not liking Maduro, is liking baseball. Uh, and one of them, and two of these general officers told me, well, one, one didn't make general, the other made general, and that 80% of the military would not lift a finger to defend Maduro. And the question is, you know, what what happens with the other 20%? Can you, in some of those even, they say you can convince, no, 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 this, we're doing the right thing respecting the Constitution. So if some momentum were to be built up over that, uh, you might see some change. One last thing, if I could, bipartisanship. You know, I, I've been at this a long time, as I'm sure you have, but I've been at Latin America for a long time, 30 years. I'm getting so old that I lose decades. I said, I've known this guy 23 years. No, it's 33 years. Okay. <laughs> Um, and I worked for Jesse Helms, who was no shrinking violet when it came to ideological struggles on Central America and fighting communism and everything. But we had, for the last 25 years, most of the last 25 years, a very strong bipartisan consensus behind the policies in Latin America uh, in pushing trade and pushing empowerment of workers uh, through... Uh, uh, labor rights and democratic institutions, democracy, respect for human rights. This was bipartisan in large. Now, there were outliers, uh, but quite frankly, we've lost that for the most part. We can get it back if with the right kind of leadership, right kind of policies, people just willing to talk about their differences uh, in a serious way. And as adults, I think we certainly can get the consensus back and do good things for all of us. Thank you. Roger, thanks for a great presentation. And we have a little Council of America.